Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 93 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. My onstage Carol Pop conversation with the multi-talented two-time Oscar nominee Michael Shannon is coming up July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Some tickets are still available. Go to evansonspace.com to get them. Our Carol Pop guest this week is a true music legend as well as one of the most distinct, talented guitarists ever, Steve Cropper. As a young man in Memphis, Tennessee, Cropper brought his crisp tones to the Marquees, which had a smash hit in 1961 with the instrumental Last Night. He went on to make his name with Booker T and the MGs, which had its own string of instrumental hits, starting with 1962's Green Onions. Others include Hip Hugger, Hang 'em High, and my favorite, Time Is Tight. Just as significant, Booker T and the MGs became the house band for Memphis's Stax Records. Booker T and the MGs are playing with Sam and Dave on such hits as Hold On, I'm Coming and Soul Man. Play it, Steve. Cropper is the Steve of Play It Steve. They also back Eddie Floyd on Knock on Wood, which Cropper co-wrote, and Albert King on Born Under a Bad Sign and Cross Cut Saw. But Booker T and the MGs made an especially big impact playing with a singer who initially arrived at Stax, driving another singer to the studio, Otis Redding. Otis Redding was a towering talent, a soul singer with a voice that could rip the roof off or disarm you with its tenderness. Booker T and the MGs played on his first single, These Arms of Mine, and the classics that followed, including I've Been Loving You Too Long, Respect, which Otis wrote and Aretha Franklin famously covered, Try a little tenderness. They also joined him live. If you want a sense of Otis and the band's power together, watch their volcanic performance at the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 1967. Cropper, who was also doing A&R for Stax at the time, worked closely with Redding. They co-wrote several songs, including Mr. Pitiful and Redding's sole number one hit, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. That landmark single was recorded shortly before a plane carrying Redding and members of the Barquets, who had been touring with him, crashed near Madison, Wisconsin on December 10th, 1967. Redding and six others were killed. Both the single, The Dock of the Bay, and the album of the same name were released posthumously. Proper, who previously co-produced the classic album Otis Blue, Otis Redding Sings Soul, produced The Dock of the Bay and Redding's other sessions in 1967. Those songs formed the basis of three other Redding albums. My favorite, the immortal Otis Redding, was released in mid-1968 and features the wonderful ballad I've Got Dreams to Remember, the single The Happy Song, Dum Dum Dee 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 Dum Dum, and Hard to Handle, which the Black Crows covered. The albums Love Man and Tell the Truth followed in 1969 and 1970, respectively. Now, Rhino Records has packaged these posthumous releases in a six-LP box set called Otis Forever, the albums and singles. 1968 to 1970. It contains those four albums from Dock of the Bay through Tell the Truth, along with a newly compiled mono double album containing all of Redding's singles over that period. Cropper produced it all, and in this conversation from his home in Nashville, he takes us back to his days of playing in Booker T and the MGs and working with Otis Redding. 
How did Otis and he co-write songs? Did Otis make Booker T and the MGs a better band? Cropper also recalls producing Mavis Staples' first solo album and playing with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers Band. Remember that scene in the Blues Brothers movie when the band is playing behind chicken wire while beer bottles smash into it? You know who is throwing those bottles? The answer is a doozy. Also, what does Cropper like about playing a Fender Telecaster? Does he think of the guitar as a melodic or rhythmic instrument? And why did Sam and Dave enter from opposite sides of the stage? Cropper is now 81 and still making new music. If you're as big a fan of Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, and Stax as I am, you will love this Carol Pop conversation with Steve Cropper. I'd gotten the immortal Otis Redding and thought it was just fantastic. I got like a mono version of it from Vinyl Me Please and I got a stereo and and I found Tell the Truth in a used record store in really great shape. And I was like, oh, this is great too. So it's cool to have all this together. Are these albums mostly from one set of sessions in 1967? Yeah, but they're redo. And so a friend of mine, Hmm. he said there's a whole bunch of people on there that there wasn't at Stack. I said, there is? Okay, that's kind of interesting. But it was, he was wrong. He was dead wrong. So it's all about others. And it's we, every song I ever wrote with others, plus other stuff. So everything I guess I ever cut on others. And I love that last one. It says all the singles. Yeah, the singles are great. And I didn't realize there were so many of them. Um, and it's got the B-sides and it's all in mono, too. So you got the different mixes from the, the versions on the records. He didn't have that much stuff because we only worked from... Uh, 63 to 66 when he passed away and so some of those things like the regular champagne and wine uh we what else did we do we did a ton of joy we did uh loving by the pounds and hundreds you know i don't know what happened to those but they were probably wasn't good there it is right yeah those singles tell me about like otis coming in the first time because he was driving for someone else and then you guys heard him sing yeah so I found out later that Johnny Jenkins didn't have a driver's license. That's why I was driving a car. I thought he was a valet guy. Because he got out of the car, goes around to the trunk, opens the trunk, and starts carrying stuff in. I go running down there. I said, man, we got our own mics in there. We don't. He was sitting up like he set up for a gig with the mics and all that stuff. All we need is, is Johnny Jenkins' uh, amp and his guitar and a cord. That's all we need. Everything else we got, drums and all that stuff. But okay. <laughs> And then he kept bugging Al about somebody listening to him saying. And Al came to me because I was in our direction. And I, he said, you probably won't get him today because he's usually holds all dishes on Saturday only, not during a session. So we're through cutting that day. And we cut these arms of mine. And I said, Jim, you got to come hear this guy play. And I knew I was going to get fired if Jim didn't like him. But he said, man, this guy's great. Let's get this on tape. So we cut these arms of mine. Jim had already sent the band home, basically. He said, go home, get you some dinner, and go to your gig, and, and, and we'll come back tomorrow and try it again. So, Doug, I said, you know, Louis played, Louis Steinberg played on these arms of mine. He said, no, I did. I did. I said, really? I forgot that. And he hmm. said, yeah, you come run out on the sidewalk. I said, get your bass out real quick. We've got another song we got to put down. 
And I wanted to play piano because Booker had already gone. I think it's a book out saying Booker, Booker saying he played on it. I know he didn't. So he asked me one time, he said, Steve, you played on these arms of mine? I said, you darn right I did. These arms are, he said, play me something in the church choir. I said, you play something. I was sitting at the piano. He said, no, I need you to play something. I said, I don't know. I can't play piano. He said, play me something in church choir. Quads, he called them. Q-U-A-D-S, quads. Mm. Church quads. Uh, six, eight triplets is all that is. Da, 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 da. These arms of mine, they are lonely. <laughs> Johnny Jenkins is playing guitar on there. So how did you get to the point where Otis is singing These Arms of Mine? Did you finally say, okay, just like, you know, we're at the end of the session, just sing the song, let's hear it. And you're sort of expecting not much. And then his voice came out and you're like, wait a minute. He's the only artist that ever sang that made the hair of my arm stand up. So I went upstairs. I knew if Jim Stewart didn't like him, I was going to get fired. I said, I didn't care. That guy's worth it. <laughs> so I said, Jim, you got to come. You got to stop what you're doing. Come and listen to this guy sing. He said, I can't. I'm in the middle of playing back. I said, I don't care. Just stop what you're doing and come and listen to this guy sing. I thought I was going to get fired right there before we got to the studio. <laughs> I was up in the control room. I was on the stage of the, of the Royal Theater. So he came down there, and, and Otis started saying, these are under mine, and that's what I told you already. I said, that's what Jim said, man, we got to get this on tape. <laughs> I kept my job. Right, uh, absolutely. Well, you got the singing, and then you also have the song. I mean, it's a great song that he'd written. So you could have had him sing some standard or something, but he's singing an original song you've never heard before. Right. And it's a classic. Like you say, These Arms of Mine, and, and anyone listening to this is going to be like, well, yeah, These Arms of Mine, of course. That's like this classic Otis Redding song. And it's the one that he just like, he was driving the car and then set up and did a session right there. And that's the recording that you hear on the record, right? Right. And a guy in Nashville, right here in Nashville, broke that song, John Richburg. Anytime I hear a song, like a soul ballad in 6-8, I think, oh, they're, they're, that sounds like Otis Redding. We just did what we were doing. In the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, if you had enough hits, you got an album. So it was really the best of for most artists. And then they'd throw in, uh, you know, Stardust and a couple of songs that they didn't write that nobody had heard of. Stardust, everybody heard of that, but they'd always cut those kind of songs. Familiar, some familiar, some not so familiar song. But uh, that's what we did. We put out singles, we put out an album that had uh, five or six singles in it, and then the rest of them would be fillers, what we call filler songs. Right. Yeah, he'd do a lot of covers, which often were really good. I mean, Otis Blue, you got three Sam Cooke covers on there, and it's it's not that long after Sam Cooke had died. Was was Otis, like, really sort of moved by, by Sam Cooke at that I point? So. And I always said that if you took a jar of... Uh, of a little Richard and a jar of Sam Cooke, shook it up, poured it out, you'd get Otis ready. Mm. He could croon like Sam, he could belt it out like little Richard. I mean, obviously, Dock of the Bay, sitting on the Dock of the Bay was the the big one. Right. And, and part of what was so heartbreaking about it was that it was such a, I mean, you guys co-wrote that, but it was such a, it, it kind of was moving him in this other direction. And you're like, oh, I want to see what comes out of that. How did you end up co-writing that with him? Well, Otis did something he never did. He only did it once in his lifetime. He called me from the airport said, I'm, I'm, I just called. I want to make sure you're at the studio. I've got to hit him coming right down with it. He, he said that almost every time, but it's usually from the motel room, not, not from the airport. Huh. So he flew in on his plane and went to a telephone and called me to see if I was at the studio, which I was. And he brought it down. He says, you know, 
said, in the morning, soon I'll be sitting one evening, comes watching the ships roll in. I said, to hold it right there. He said, what? I said, have you ever thought about if a ship rolls, it's going to take a water and sink? He said, no, that's what I want. Two be years to figure out what he was talking about. Talking about ferries. He wasn't talking about ships. Oh, oh interesting. Like everybody does, a vision of a ship going on the Golden Gate Bridge. He was in, in Sausalito when he started that song, on Bill Graham's Boathouse. And I had that confirmed with, uh, with uh, Neil Young. I never I thought a, of that, the ship's rolling. Yeah, that makes total sense. So if you if you vision it, uh, uh, what about what did I just say? Ferry, it rolls water up, rolls up a big way to let people in cars off, and rolls when it backs out. It does the same thing on the opposite side. That's what he was talking about. I watched right. the ships rolling, and I watched them roll away again. He was talking about ferries. He wasn't talking about ships. <laughs> I guess I was just assume the ships do the same thing, but they don't. Interesting. They go up and down this way. <laughs> forward. They don't go sideways. So when he called you and he was singing that, were you were you like, wow, that sounds great? Yeah. And so I wrote all of the bridge, except I didn't write all the lyrics to the bridge. I wrote all the music to the bridge. And helped him finish the third verse, I guess. When he, when he says, I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. I got nothing to live for. It looks like nothing's going to come my way. I think I, I wrote uh, the second half of the verse. He had uh, left my home in Georgia already written down. Is that sort of how your co-writing would work in general, that he would sort of come up with an idea and then you would sort of flesh it out and finish it together? Yeah, that's sort of it. But one song, he was giving me a horn part, going, fa, 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 fa. I said, there's a song. He said, what are you talking about? I said, fa, 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 fa. Right. Happy song, yeah. <laughs> and that was at uh, the uh, Holiday Inn on 3rd Street, different one. You had the sad song, and then you had the happy song. And I was wondering, right. like, who suggested, like, well, we had a sad song, so we should do a happy song. Or did, is, did they just kind of come one after the other, and it just made sense? One was Dum Dum, and one was Fa Fa. Right. So, da 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 Supposed to be six minor, it's not. There's no minors in Otis Redding's song. Not one in your hand in that album is is a minor. Unless we use we played minors for the song, but not the songs he wrote. He wrote them all in major. Why? One finger guy. <laughs> is there, there are no minor chords in any songs that he wrote? No, that he wrote. Wow. Did you introduce any minor chords? Like, hey, all right, we're gonna put a minor in here, or he's like, No, I, that's no. not what I'm doing. <laughs> so here's what I did. He he wrote all of his songs that way, so I tuned one of my guitars that way. And we went on the road with him with two guitars. One tuned regular and one tuned to a chord. So the the licks on uh, Old Man Trouble is my, one of my favorites. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. It's easy to play that way. You can't play it the other way. It's just too tough to, to try to hold a chord down and move it. You can't do it. But you do it with your fingers. Easy. Was co-writing with Otis different from co-writing with Eddie Floyd or some of the other guys who you co-wrote with? Uh, yeah, a little bit different. Not not a whole lot, but a little bit different. And then I just found out, it's funny how you find stuff out many years later. I was talking about uh, Don Covey. I wrote several songs with Don, but he, at the time, Tom Dowd called me from New York and said, have you read the latest Playboy? And I said, no, I don't take it. He said, get a copy and read it. Don Covey's in there doing an interview for in Playboy. And he said he wrote something on Dock of the Bay. 
He didn't write that song. But I did find out this week that he supposedly wrote, uh, I can't do what 10 people tell me to do. And I think that's the one line that sells the whole song. I know the whole song is good, but that, that line in the bridge, I can't and, do what 10 people tell me to do. Everybody can relate to that. that has got a job that has a foreman or whatever. Absolutely. They say 10 people, well, like the foreman you know, designates everybody on down, just like in the military. <laughs> did you feel like Otis was evolving as a writer a lot at that point well, he was evolving as an artist and the thing was we kept looking for something that would sell both pop and r&b because he was big r&b we didn't lose that audience but we wanted to gain a new audience and so doc of the bay fit the, that description it was it was a mediocre simple song and it wasn't as r&b and funky as some of the other ones it's more popish and i think i got uh, that bridge the first time we played, uh, we played the Monterey Pop Festival. When we got there, the association was on stage, and you could hear them through the because we had the windows down on the bus, and you could hear the association. And I, I sort of got that, that feel from the association for the bridge. It's not the same changes. Interesting. Well, Dock of the Bay is it? It sort of seemed like a sort of a you know pretty mellow song, but then as, kind of with anything that you guys played on, you realize there is the still totally funky kind of under groove to the whole thing. Like the, it does move; it's not like in your face like it, but it definitely rolls along, and, and you realize that it is still does still have that sort of stacks groove going on, but it's it's in in a different kind of setting. Right. If I could pull a guitar off of several sessions, I could prove a point that. Otis made me just sound good. So maybe sound funkier than I really was. <laughs> and the country I got, the funkier it got. He's just an old country boy, but it's so funky. You know? How did Otis make you guys, Booker T and the MGs, play differently and grow as musicians as opposed to all the other, you know, acts that you guys backed at the time? I don't know. You just, uh, when you work behind Otis, uh, you just come up with more different ideas, I guess. And of all the artists on stacks that we had a bunch at one time, about 17 artists signed at one time, he was the only artist that the horn players, everybody said, well, they couldn't wait till Otis got back in town. When's he coming back? I don't know. We only got him for one or two days at a time, except I think the Otis Blue album, he was there for about three or four days. And I remember we didn't figure out he wasn't there, but he was there earlier in the week and we wrote a lot of songs but uh on that session we didn't get through during the session during the album so jim Stewart said can you guys come back after your gigs tonight so we showed back up about 1 1 o'clock in the morning and finished that album with mm. four sides to finish that we did and i remember the guys were outside his band his traveling band they were on the bus outside they said otis they were yelling come on come on otis. come on come on or we're gonna miss our gig well, about an hour leg in there. He wrote, can't turn you loose, what we did in about 10 minutes. Can't turn you loose. He didn't have the lyrics. <laughs> what was it about Otis that everyone wanted to work with and be part of? I don't know. He's just a great guy. And, and I always looked at Otis as, uh, as an older brother. But he was the same age I was, 26 years old. <laughs> I have a video of uh, you guys playing a Monterey pop and that set is just on fire and, and you sort of can see him just kind of, you know, wowing everyone, including, I would guess you guys on stage. Yeah. They were measure our show. Are we, <laughs> there's something about the music is just different. And we open the same way. 
we'd have a book of tea, we'd do green onions, and we'd bring the horns out and do last night, and then we you know, just build that way. And by the time Lotus got there, the band had warm up, ready to go. <laughs> it's like doing a quick rehearsal to get everybody ready to go. Like you guys would play behind like Sam and Dave in the studio. Were you the same band playing behind Sam and Dave, or were you sort of a different band when you were behind Lotus? Uh, well, yeah, I'd play the same band, just played a little louder, a little harder. And the thing went about Sam and Dave, they were definitely the dynamic duo. When they hit that stage, they, they entered from two different sides, so they didn't like each other all that much. <laughs> right. People are not supposed to know that, but anyway, they do. I've said it a, bit, a dozen times, they didn't like each other very much. Sam could sing, Dave couldn't, but so we had to bring <laughs> Sam down to Dave's level. The fact that Dave could dance just blew everybody away. He was a great dancer, so Sam was too, and together they were the dynamic duo. And I remember they had the crowd going over in Liverpool, I think it was, so big the cops came out and stopped the show. So what are y'all doing? They pointed to a crack in the balcony. <laughs> oh, we're afraid it's going to fall with all those kids. Never mind. And finally they come back and said, okay, you're okay now. And they moved those kids out of that balcony. Oh, wow. So you start back now. But those guys can't dance. I said, man, that's their damn show. They can't go to the audience. What do you mean they can't dance? They're going to Otis. That's their show. <laughs> so we did it anyway. On a lot of the Otis records, you have Booker T and the MGs and Isaac Hayes playing at the same time. Like, how did right. Isaac and you Booker T... As a producer, I can't tell you who's playing what. I can't tell you when there's a piano. I can tell on the organ, but I can't tell on the piano because they played so much alike. And I, I said something years ago, when I said years ago, probably three or four years ago, I said... If Booker had not taken off and gone to college, then there would have been an Isaac Hayes. Because Isaac was a total replacement for Booker. He wasn't the Isaac Hayes we all know. He was just a piano player <laughs> at that time, back in the early days. And then developed as a songwriter as well. So he and yeah. they had like that team writing and you you writing and uh, a lot of great writing going on in those early Stacks years. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Otis Redding album? I probably would say Otis Blue if I had to, if I was made to force her into one to be Otis Blue. Otis Blue is a fantastic record, and it definitely is like the sort of leap of a like it's his third record. First two are really good. That one's great. When you were recording the material, like around the time you're doing Dock of the Bay and a lot of the stuff that ends up on these albums that Rhino just re-released. Did you feel like you were making an album or was the idea that you were just like recording a bunch of songs and then you'd figure out what was going to go on which album? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, I would say definitely working on an album. I treated albums more like singles. I knew it was only one at a time. You can't put them all out. And they're all good and you can't put them all out. So you go one at a time. You sit down like we did with Jim Stewart decided to do a meeting with everybody on Monday morning. And they would pick what what side we put out of it. What we recorded that week, they we'd play them all back, and they say, "That's a hit, or that's a hit, or that's not a hit, that's a hit." Jim and I would pick the songs for a long time, right? And then he started that, and we had to had to bow down to whatever the the group said. Was, that's what rang out true, and they're usually right. They're pretty good at it. So after Otis died, the Dock of the Bay was the first album that came out, and it had. Obviously, Dock of the Bay was the first song, and a bunch of other songs that you'd recently recorded. And then there were there were a few songs that that had been kind of around already. Old Man Trouble, 
shows up on there. It was already on Otis Blue. There were like a few of them that were like, there was like a B-side on there. How did you decide that that was that album? Were those songs always intended to go together or like what determined those those songs were on that album and then you had Immortal Otis Redding like after that, which is a whole other set of songs. So by that time... Getting Booker T and MGs together on that session was hard to do, but we got them in on Dock of the Bay, and it was sort of pretty sparse. We had to got the horns together on on that original take, and I played acoustic guitar. So on that record on Dock of the Bay, there's two guitars, and I'm playing both of them, which is unusual. Now we had used uh, Don Davis on some guitar stuff, and Johnny on guitar, Wendy. Renee's uh, brother. They said, how come there's only one guitar? I said, because stacks could afford two guitars. Huh. When you did these songs, like what kind of shape were they in when you got them together for these albums? Like were they, did you have all the basic tracks or, or was it like, oh, we need to sort of, you know, uh, redo these parts? I can give you some examples. Uh, I don't think Tony Joy's on there. Deregmy's on there, Champagne and Wine. And they were cut by myself, Otis and Ronnie Capone. And we go eat and come back to the studio, and they called us a midnight recorders. And then Isaac got that idea from us, basically. And he went in and been out or whatever with the, without the Stax band and recorded. He was so good. <laughs> so the songs on the Dock of the Bay, were they pretty much done? Or did you have to sort of do a lot of work on them afterward? Yeah, no, they, were, they had to be remixed. And that was all mixed. I think you'd read the, read the credits. Most of it was mixed at, uh, in New York, the Sitting on Dock of the Bay album. Right. So and, the tracks had all been recorded. It just was a matter of mixing it. Right. And then Immortal Otis Redding, I mean, it starts with I've Got Dreams to Remember, which is one of the great songs and performances. Right. Were those songs on that album done as like an album? Or were the, was it just like these are like, uh, like and you had this accumulation of tracks and you sort of looked at it and said, oh, these work together. It was about to be a single. In those days, except when we were doing an album, like we cut Champagne and Wine, Don't Mess with Cupid, which Eddie Floyd and I wrote. Right. What else? Oh, Satisfaction was an album cut. And if if we needed to copy the record for them to learn, we'd run up front and listen to it. <laughs> they were quick learners. By the way, Tramp, uh, there's a version of Tramp, which he did with Carla Thomas, is on King and Queen and also on Dock of the Bay. And I'll just have you know that we had that performed at our wedding. She was not straight from the Georgia woods, but she was definitely, she was the country one versus me. And we'd always love that song. So Carla and uh, Otis both made up most of the lyrics on it. And we just kept going until we got the right take and that was it. <laughs> That's great. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. It's really fantastic. When Carter says, Otis, you ain't nothing but a tramp. That started him. He didn't like that so much. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Love Man and Tell the Truth. So like all of these songs, like had you just recorded them all and they just needed to be mixed? Like how did you end up with so much material? It was easy. Well, like I said, we just cut songs to be singles and put them on the shelf. So when it comes time to make it down, we pull them down. Same thing with Booker T and the MGs, except they weren't titled until the album was mixed. Right. Sit down one day and do nothing but titles. They were just tracks, track one, track two, all the way up to track eight or whatever. In those days, track 10. See, I could have a whole conversation with you about the titles of Booker T and the MG songs. Like, how did you come up with, you know, Hip Hugger, for instance? Well, Hip Hugger is a story I put in the show. Booker said, let's call it Pedal Pushers. Um, you know what that is. Pedal pusher. They made pants for girls that were long, but they didn't want to get get the pants caught in the spokes like boys would. And if you had a cover on it, everything was fine. But most of most of the bikes in those days didn't have a cover. They were faster, but they didn't have a cover. 
Mm. But they didn't want the pants to get caught in the spokes. So they came up with these knee things called hip huggers <laughs> and pedal pushers. So that was it. So the girls didn't get caught. Booker, I don't know about pedal pushers, but there's a new fashion coming out called hip huggers. You mind if I call it that? And he said, no. And I said, do you mind if I spell it? He said, no. So I spelled it hip dash hug, H-U-G dash her, H-E-R, hip hugger. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Did you guys tend to title the stuff together or was one of you sort of the title guy? I think so. Melting Pot was my idea and, I, and, and Booker went for it. So we'd, he'd come up with an idea and I said, great. I've got some good titles for new albums coming out. Great titles. Oh, nice. The one single I know we're coming with is a single because everybody has told me, you don't need the music. Just put the damn title out called Crawl Space. Ooh. Crawl Space. That's good. Yeah, I thought of that back in the 60s, but I didn't. <laughs> is that an instrumental or you got some vocals on it? It's no, there's no vocals. Nice. Yeah, I saw Booker T and the MGs at the Cubby Bear in Chicago early 90s twice one with uh anton fig is your drummer and then one with steve jordan and they were fantastic i was like i can't believe i'm getting to see booker t and the mgs and i'm standing right by the stage i was like one uh, of the we great were different than most bands we did it slightly different simple but different <laughs> and so i got reminded the other day on a session i said i love the way you voice your chords i said i never thought about that i just it's an old church chords i learned how to play from from the black church i guess the gospel song and it just has a different sound. It's the same chord, but it's a different sound. And then you modulate from that and you go do different stuff. And Well, it just seemed like you guys always knew, like not in terms of like a perfectionist thing, but you guys always knew the right thing to play and not to play anything more than what worked. Right. Like like you were totally economical, but the parts were memorable and fantastic. Never overplayed. Appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, do you think that was part of the sound that they just you sort of knew that there needed to be space in there as well as you know what you guys were adding? Right. Well, things like minor sevens and major sevens and all that sort of stuff. Jim Stewart said, "Get that jazz chord out of there." <laughs> <laughs> and he knew music. He was a fiddle player. He knew music, so it wasn't like he was just coming off the cuff. He said, He knew what he was talking about in most cases, but he couldn't keep time. Neither could Doug Dunn with a foot. And Al Booker and I always kept time. We just kept perfect time all the time. Well, and Al Jackson was one of the great drummers of all time, too. Like, he people did. said, who's your favorite drummer? And I'll say Al Jackson, and they'll say, who? Uh, he can play a shuffle down, nobody could. And he, he never got Duck, uh, Duck and I lost on a song, either. And he had a trick for that, but we knew it. He had something he did in the first bar of each eight when it came up, or whatever it was, it was 12 or 16. He did something with the first bar that just cued us at the top of the thing at each time. Nowadays, these drummers play a turn and they go right on through into the first bar. And we get lost out of crazy sometimes. <laughs> you listen to a song like Time is Tight, and it seems like what he's playing is really simple. And yet there's something so driving and funky about it. I listen to it and it's like magic. And like, like this is like some of the greatest drumming I've ever heard. And it's just this insistent beat, but the feel of it is like nothing I can think of. Well, you know who turned us on to Al Jackson that we knew, the duck and I knew? Anton Vig. He said, have you guys seen that video you did up in Oslo, Norway? I said, no. And he said, get it listed. It's out now. And it proved that. Duck and I had always said that's the greatest drummer we ever worked with. Yeah. He was great. And then, then my engineer pulled up this thing we did in Paris for 
New Year's Eve or something, some dance party thing. And I don't even remember playing it, but that band is smoking. That's all I'll tell you. For those who have seen it, they would know. For those who haven't seen it, get it, get it and watch it. It's great. <laughs> and we what do the same old thing. And, and you can really see how Al and Booker would work together, too. So there's a spot in that album, I mean, in that concert that we just, Duck and I sort of quit playing and let them have it. Oh, amazing. How much of a difference did it make for Booker T and the MGs when Duck Dunn came in to replace Louis Steinberg? That's hard to say. I don't know. I've been trying to get Duck in that band since high school. <laughs> it seemed like he pushed the beat more. It seemed like you guys, like, it was a little bit more pushed to the music when he joined. Right. But I tried to get him, suit him from the marquee, and he wouldn't leave him. He stayed out there for another two years. I finally got him in. And so when we had Green Onions, that was in 62, I guess. We went on the road with Louie, and, and Louie and Booker could not get along, so Jim bought Louie out of his contract mm. for Booker. <laughs> I can say that now that Louie's gone. And I told Booker, I said, if we, you and I went on the road, and I'd be Booker T and the MG. All the rest of them are gone. <laughs> Don Nix and myself, the only two guys alive. Yeah, Booker still plays around. Would you guys do any shows together? Nah, I think the last one we did was uh, Madison Square Garden. And we had, before that, we had played uh, the White House and a couple of things. And so I think uh, Eric Clapton wanted me on that show. And he, and we did Green Onions with seven guitar players. Hmm. He took a solo and that ended up. We never did that again. <laughs> How long ago was that? A long time ago. It was the last Eric Clapton uh, Crossroads. He did. We did one with him three years prior to that. It's a Cod Bowl. And I think he did one after that that didn't invite it, but he did on this one. The Madison Square Garden show. Do you and Booker T keep in touch? Not, not on a regular basis, no. Do you go back and listen to those records? Every now and then, I hear. If it's played on the radio, I listen. Is there a moment where you guys think that you peaked as a band? I don't know. I wouldn't want to follow us, let's put it that way, or the Blues Brothers Band. Powerful band. Ooh. That's the hottest band I've ever worked with. There's a big horn section band, big, big horns. And everybody plays that same music almost the same way, like we did it. So I think Schaefer is on the first, on a, on a score, but he's not in a movie, on the first movie. Oh, right. Because Lauren Michaels wouldn't let him out of the contract for good. And John and Danny were so big. And John was just coming off of Animal House and uh, going south and, uh, you know, that movie in 1941. He was so big that they left their contract. They left a year early on their contracts for Saturday Night Live. And you felt like they got a bad rap for their musicianship because the people didn't respect them because they were TV guys, even though they really were music guys. Well, yes and no. And I'm going to tell you about this. We, Duck and I got a lot of flack playing on that. So what are you guys, as good as you are, playing R&B? What are you doing working with these two clowns? I said, because they're good. And they didn't know that. John actually did sing. I said, he used to front a band in Scandinavia. And I said, Ackroyd actually is playing the harmonica. He didn't faking it. He's playing it. They didn't know that at the time, so we had to tell them. <laughs> did they ever right. try to write, like, new Blues Brothers songs? No. I've tried to rearrange. We've tried to rearrange some things. It worked out pretty good. And I never could get it. I, I kept trying to get Booker to just go in and cut some of the old hits. And we'll have a CD, so when they want something in the movie, they don't have to pay the enormous amount for it. They'll just pay a fee, and 
we'll get it. Right. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. He thought I was trying to mess with him. I didn't. I wouldn't ever do that. And you had Aretha Franklin in that movie. And James Brown. And Ray Charles was in the first one. We had BB in the second one. Right. Obviously, you were on the original uh, Otis version of Respect. What did you think when you heard uh, Aretha's for the first time? <laughs> I remember where I was. And I pulled a car over and listened to the record. I said, why would you do that? Most of the people interviewing me didn't even know that Otis had that out. I said, Otis was first by about three years. Tom Dowd is the one that got Aretha to do that song. Went number one. So I called Jerry Wexler. I said, Jerry, where's my gold record? He said, what are you talking about? I said, obviously you hadn't read uh, Billboard yet. We always got it Monday morning. That's the first thing we looked at. There was Aretha at the number one position with a, with a red dot. That means it sold over a million copies. Means you get a gold record. <laughs> I never did get one. Huh. What did you think of the version when you heard it? Pretty good. I love people who cover something I've done. It was, I thought it was good. What did you think of the Black Crows version of Hard to Handle? Well, they put an extra beat in there, extra half a beat. And I know what a pretty little thing, let me light your candle, because Mama sure hard to handle now. Yes, I am. Comes out right, but it's wrong in the middle. So you you were just like, ah, they, they messed it up. Pretty little thing, let me light your candle, because Mama sure hard to handle now. Yes, I am. <laughs> it's one that people know now, and that was not one that was even on one of the original albums, and yet it's standout track. And when you listen to it on your own, the Otis version, you're like, oh, this is a great song. It is. But I'll tell you something I know you don't know. Doug Dunn's son did the, was the engineer for the Black Crows music. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. You didn't know that. I knew you didn't know that. So did he, did he bring the song to them, you think? And I'll tell you something else you don't know. Who was throwing the, the bottles at us? In the first movie. I remember the bottles being thrown at you and breaking against that uh, fence. Through the chicken wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Willie Nelson, their sister's paycheck. Really? Wow. Yeah. They were the sound stage at Universal next door filming Coal Miner's Daughter. See, I was going to say that Coal Miner's Daughter was around the same time. They so. came over on a break just to see what we were doing. So Landis, the director, John Landis, hands him a box of sugar beer bottles. I said, throw them at the guys. Really? Yeah. So they're going over the cameraman's head and throwing those bottles at us. That's hilarious. There's no shot of them doing it, is there? No. Darn it. Wow. Hearsay. I got to interview one of them and say, look, I heard you guys are throwing bottles at the Blues Brothers. Well, I, <laughs> I caught Willie one time off, off stage. He's getting on his bus. I said, Willie, it's proper. Hey, man, how you doing? I said, did you know, do you remember throwing beer bottles at us? He said, no, he didn't remember. And, <laughs> you know, that's Willie. He didn't remember a lot of stuff. That's okay. How was your time in Chicago film, filming Blues Brothers? Well, we cut everything at uh, the soundtrack at Universal in in uh, Chicago. Universal Studios, that's the name of it? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's one of the old, uh, one of the big downtown uh, recording studios from way back when, right. yeah. And... Uh, they said that Ray Charles was real difficult to work with. He was a pussycat, let me tell you something. He was great. We had more fun working with Ray. <laughs> and James came in while we were recording. He said, I hear you guys do both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> <laughs> the scenes you were in were filmed there as well? Yeah, we were 12 weeks in uh, in Chicago and 15 weeks in L.A. Any Chicago memories stick out from that time? When you say things stick out, it was usually the off days, but... Uh, we weren't. We were back home whenever they did the car stuff in the air and all that dropped from the helicopter. I remember the uh, 
pawn shop scene with Ray. So it was a real pawn shop. It wasn't made up in the kids dancing outside. That wasn't made up either. <laughs> was the Aretha Franklin Diner, was that in Chicago or L.A.? Uh, South Stage in L.A. Ah, that's too bad. Did you all think uh, Blues Brothers was going to be a really good movie, or was it kind of chaotic, or like what was the feeling? They had a lot of fun doing it. We didn't know it was going to be a hit as it was. You'd been playing with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi already, but now you're dealing with them on the set of a movie. Was that a different experience? Uh, yeah, the whole thing about movies are different. And Doc looked at me one time. He said, "I can do this the rest of my life." I said, "Me too." <laughs> they really take care of you when you're a principal in a movie. Revolution Brewing is Illinois' largest independently owned brewery, and its beers are brewed only in Chicago using pure Lake Michigan water. If you enjoy comic books that are actually beer, you'll love issue 19 of Revolution's League of Heroes IPA variety pack. It takes you back to the arcade days with a relatively new beer style, Cold IPA, plus Subs Hero, Action Hero Hazy IPA, and the all-new Arcade Hero. Get on the joystick and follow at Rev Brew Chicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I've been loving you. Too long. To stop now. What is it about the Fender Telecaster that drew you to it? Well, the main thing about a Telecaster is it's uh, very useful. It's got a multiple purpose, multiple sounds. When you hit a chord on a, on a Gibson, I'm not knocking Gibson. It's all distorted and it sounds good. It's one good sound. Telecaster, you hear every note you're hitting. So most of the guys, and I will tell you this if you use this, most of the guys play green onions, that intro to green onions on upstroke, too. And I'm doing four ones, two, one, one leg, but it's it's in the in the hands. So I I keep it right, and on, you know it's on a middle pickup, but uh, I'm not on a middle pickup, middle position. You got the neck pickup and the back pickup, but I put it in the middle position to get a little of both to make the front pickup a little broader. Nice, yeah, because I tell you, you only got the two, so as opposed to the Strat where you have the three. Was that always the guitar you had, or did you start off? What, what was your first guitar? So the ones I use at the session are gone. Most of them are gone. And I got one now I've been playing for nine years. And it's locked on the front pickup. And I took it to Tokyo one time. The first time I pulled it out of the closet and played it, took it to Tokyo. And the band said, yeah, keep that guitar. That sounds great. And I said, okay. So I used to lock it down on, on the front pickup. Well, on the neck pickup. But I would did hit it and go bright again when I hit it hard or something like that and, and hit that switch so I locked it down with a piece of cardboard and then I ran over to set like that <laughs> so I couldn't play the back pickup now if I wanted to huh I just it kept rattling and the, the screws in the, in the back pickup or the bright pickup would rattle I'd tighten it come home and tighten it down two three dates and it'd be back to normal so i just pulled it out and put a piece of cardboard in there spread it gold everybody said man i love that pickup you guys i said obviously you can see it from where you're sitting and I said, they said that's piece no impossible i said no it's possible all right do you remember the first guitar you ever picked up uh i do it's at the museum down here in uh, nashville at the musicians hall of fame 
What was it? Was it a telly? Or? And then my uncle died and left it to my aunt, and I tried to buy it from her. She wouldn't. So my dad went to his, it was his sister, and he said, I left something in the car. I said, you want to help us? And, no, and he turned the corner with it, and I knew what he had. I said, you got that from Marty? Yep. <laughs> so that guitar is an old Gibson, one of the first Gibsons ever made. And I took it out to the president, he's a friend of mine, to the uh, Gibson plant. And he said, yeah, that's amazing. So I talked to the guy that curated downtown. He's not with us anymore either. I said, you want me to put some strings on it? And I'll leave it just like it is. It's got three or four strings on it. A couple of them broken. So we just left it the way it was. What do you remember playing when you first started playing guitar? Were you were you coming up with licks? Were you just sort of strumming it? Like, how did that, yeah, how did I you become? I play, period. And I think one of the first songs I played or learned to play was Bo Diddley. Just one chord open tuning. So pretty simple. And that's a song that I heard a friend of mine play. Ed Bruce played that one time at a, not a talent show, it wasn't a talent show. It was just, he was just on the show and it was, they did once a month at the school we were at. And so I walked, walked my way backstage and he was putting that guitar up. I said, how'd you learn how to play like that? He turned around and he said, son, you just got to get yourself a guitar and learn how to play it. So I started looking at the Sears catalog and I finally found one that, uh, that I could afford. Let's put it that way. And I sit there, my mom said, I sit on the front porch all morning long, I think, and they started delivers at eight. I think they finally showed up about 1231. <laughs> and she said, I said, mom, after they gave me the guitar, it came out in the box, in a cardboard box, because, you know, you didn't pay for the case and all that So I said, there's a 25 cent delivery fee, and I only have the money for the guitar. And she said, if she'd never given me that quarter, I'd have never been a guitar player. <laughs> Probably right. My dad, when he got home that night, he said, you learn how to play that, son. And he said, I'll buy you a real guitar. <laughs> so he did. I learned how to play that one. And he he said, okay, it's about time. And we went over and he bought a used electric guitar and I played that for a while. Did you think of the guitar as more of sort of a melodic or a rhythmic instrument? More of a rhythm, rhythm thing. I know you get music out of it, but I didn't care about playing music. So I just played by ear what I was hearing. And they say most guitar players are frustrated drummers, and I'm one of those guys. That's all I know. I always was in love with drums. I never could play them, but I was in love with them. And Al Jackson showed me a couple of licks. I said, teach me this, teach me that, and he did. Didn't do any good. <laughs> But yeah, you always had that rhythmic foundation to your playing. And obviously, you know, Booker T and the MGs from Green Onion on, it always was music that made you want to move. I mean, was that was that something in your kind of DNA that you wanted to make music that made people move? Yeah, definitely. We were all about dance. Duck and I were, I know that. We were all about dancing. Anything we anything we could play to make people dance, that we liked it, we kept it. So we're always coming up with the grooves and things that would make people dance. And Al was one of those guys, he didn't care what you did as long as you knew what you're doing. Playing the rhythm, he'd lock it right in on it. And then Booker would play those melodies, great melodies on it, in time. You know, Booker has perfect pitch. He can play any and every instrument ever designed or made. Mm. He can get the music out of it. He just knows what it is. And he plays horn. His main instrument is trombone, by the way, not organ. Organ was a secondary thing. His instrument in school was part trombone. Huh. He's the first guy, I think it's at Illinois State University, he's the first freshman to ever make the marching band the first year. 
They, even if you're good, they, they make you wait until the second year to your sophomore to get in. He got in as a freshman because he was so good at playing and marching at the same time, and they knew that, so they put him in there. There was like a college versus professional musician thing going on with him, right? Oh, yeah. You know, Booker can write and arrange music for big orchestras. He'd write, he'd write music for 100 pieces, I guess. You know, we never had that many. We couldn't afford that many. So it was a, a modified string section. Nine or ten guys, and that'd, that'd be about it. And when you were at Stax, you were also working A&R there, right? I mean, weren't you sort of helping sign? Oh, yeah. Janitor, Mark Tapes, edited, mixed, did, did the whole thing. Did the gambit or whatever it took. I was just an on-the-job guy. Same so, thing with guitar. So, and you got a new album that you're working on now, an instrumental album? Yeah. It was, it's the same group that got, we got nominated last year. Right. Yeah, album. you had Fire It Up, which came out in 21. Yeah. It's the same group of guys, but this time we've added Billy Gibbons on the on album. Oh, nice. He agreed to do it. He's still in Europe, and he's going to open up his parts on some of the stuff he did. There's three songs, I think, that I co-wrote with him, and uh, that John Tevin and I co-wrote with him. And there's three three songs that uh, he did that are definitely Billy Gibbons' song. And he's going to overdub on that and probably sing a couple of them, one of them anyway. And he's already written off on one of the three that Roger Real sings. Roger Real sings. It's real good. Do you feel like you're still learning as a musician? Always. I never learned how to play. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I just learned by doing it on a job. It's sort of like fixing pipes. When you, you go to your dad, your dad went to school to get his credentials as a plumber. But the kid's always there, always there watching fix leaks and drips and all that. So one day this kid, this kid grows up and he's his dad dies, he's in the business. He's fixing pipes better than anybody. Fixes it, stays fixed. <laughs> Same thing with guitar. I didn't have anybody to look after, but <laughs> I just learned by doing. And Jim let me get away with it. You play every day? No. I play when there's something to be played on. If you give me a budget and an artist, I'll have you three songs about noon tomorrow. Otherwise, I have nothing. <laughs> Do you write on your own or just when there's a project? No. I hate my writing when I write on my own. I like to co-write. People, I like to come up with a line. They say, man, that's great. Keep that in there. And I like for them to come up with a line. I say, do it again. That's great. <laughs> you know, one of the albums that I got recently was uh, the first Mavis Staples album, and you produced that one also. What was she like to work with? Pretty amazing. <laughs> so I found out something about Mavis. Pops would not let her date. He didn't. Let, she had her first date when she was twenty-one years old. He said, "Okay, you're old enough now to date." Huh. That's why. Yeah, I was dating girls in in grade school, in the sixth grade, eighth grade. <laughs> well, that first Mavis album. I mean, she'd been playing with her family and the Staple Singers for so long. And to get her out of that comfort zone and into a new setting, I would think that would have actually been kind of challenging to sort of make her comfortable to do, you know, what was her first solo album. Right. The first song she did was House Is Not a Home. Why? Because that was the only one Pops would agree that she's, he let her sing. She, she really did trust Ronnie and I. So we'd come up with ideas for songs. She'd agree to it and I'd agree to it. Same thing with Staples Singers. Once Pop trusted you, he trusted you. So... He went for the weight the night they drove old Dixie down that one. 
Right. Man called the weight. And I didn't know I'd be working with Levi and Helmet one time. So we were doing uh, an album on uh, what's it, Black with the Pixies. His last name is Black. I forget his first name. Oh, Same Frank Black. The, Frank Black. Same with the Pixies. Yeah. And uh, so there was some song we were doing that needed that good old New Orleans March, March beat. I said, call Levi and Helm. He's better than they are at it. And he was. One mm. take. So the, the producer came to me and said, Steve, thank you for suggesting him. They had to fly him in, but it was worth it. He could have botched it, but he didn't. He just nailed it. That old second line beat, I knew he was the best at it because I worked with him about a year and a half. So that band, Levon Helm and, uh, and that band, is why we were uh, in the Blues Brothers, basically, because they used it. We toured during the summer, and they used the Saturday Night Live horns. Right. And they loved it, and I did. So when Belushi came to the band and said, uh, we've been asked by Steve Martin to open for Steve, should I take the whole Saturday Night Live band? And Tom Bones Malone, a trombone player, said, you better get done in Cropper, they're old road dogs. I don't know where they came from, but they know what they're doing out there. Some of these guys may or may not know. So that's how we got the Blues Brothers. And nice. the other thing is we played Carnegie Hall and I would live on hell. And Belushi jumped up and said, if I ever put a, if I ever put a band together, I want that band. <laughs> we added uh, guitar, bad guitar Murphy, and who else did we add? Schaefer was already there. Jordan was already there. Uh, Duck was already, I was there. I'm trying to think, but there's one other person we added it to that band. So was Lev Levon Helm ever in the Blues Brothers band? No. Do you think Stax was the greatest record label of all time? I'm not going to say so. No, I don't know. But I think the greatest singer we ever had at Stax, we didn't have enough records on it, was Johnny Taylor. John Johnny go to preach it, get a royalty check. When the money ran out, he'd come back and make another record. When he got a big royalty check, he'd go back to preach it. Sort of like Little Richard did at first. And Little Richard settled down. So he just started using that architect of rock and roll and uh, stayed in Hollywood and making movies and stuff. He did real good. <laughs> so you think Johnny Taylor was Stax's best singer? Yep, definitely. Interesting. All that stuff he did after he left Stax was good, too. A lot of artists just fell on their face. They couldn't work without Booker T and MGs. I mean, they had their house bands that they took on the road with them, but they, when it comes to making records, they had to have us. Well, Sam and Dave didn't have any sort of success until they came and worked with you guys at Stax, and then when they went back, that was it, right? Right. They needed you guys. <laughs> Someone else you guys backed up was uh, Neil Young on an album and on tour. What was that like being the band for Neil Young? Well, it was great. Being with a rock star, he is a rock star. He didn't he didn't book anything. He just you know, that's the word makes one phone call, lets the word out that he's gonna be performing somewhere and everybody shows up. So they pull that on us out there. I said, man, we got two more weeks of rehearsal. I said, no, you don't. You don't perform tonight. I said, I'm going to have to have some cheat sheets. Okay. <laughs> and I used that up until the last show, and I threw that book away in the last show, played the show. But I always had it right there behind me. I never did turn around and look at it, but I, but I had it there if I needed it. And in between breaks of songs, I'd turn the page and go to the next song. So this... The tour we did, everything was worked out. We did the same show every night, just about. And uh, Neil came out and did Dock of the Bay and uh, a couple of other things that he did. Exactly. He said, you know what I like about them? Jesus, what's that? I thought he was going to start playing. He said, I don't have to tell you what song we're doing. We got voted the number one tour of the year, and he fired everybody. <laughs> he got so much hate mail from those who loved uh, his old band. 
<laughs> well, that's the fun thing with Neil Young is that he plays with all these different bands, but I thought that pairing with you guys was so cool. So, it, I thought it was cool too. David Briggs, the producer, kept saying, Crap, move out some. I said, I, I don't want to move out any further. He said, Oh, just get out there. Do your thing. Okay. <laughs> I would think for you as a guitarist, it would be interesting to be playing opposite Neil Young. Uh, he's grunge and I'm clean. So, there you go. It is what it, it works. For the others, it works because there's a clean guitar player and there's a guy playing. Just sort of stuff all the time. There you go. But he knows his chords, knows his songs. He never forgets to do his sort of like Chuck Berry. <laughs> he could play better than me, probably. But if he was singing one of his songs, he never missed a lick or, or a line. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, this is great. I really appreciate talking to you. I've been a big Booker T and the MGs fan. Love you, brother. Thank you. Right. That's all for episode 93 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Cropper for revealing so much about so much of my favorite music. The black vinyl version of Rhino's new Otis Forever box is widely available. And if you go to Rhino's online store, store store.rhino.com, you can order the multicolored 6LP version, which is limited to a thousand copies. Cropper's 2021 solo album, Fire It Up, is also widely available. For more information about Cropper, go to, yes, playitsteve.com. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows what to do when time is tight. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. There are still some tickets available for my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois go to evansonspace.com. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.